Nearly a decade ago, I found myself filling the hours by listening to podcasts while my husband, Brooks, was training with the U.S. Army. Walking the streets of our Army post, I dreamt of creating something for women that bridged that gap between sermon audio and small talk. It was on the floor of my tiny closet on post that that very dream, the Dream for the Journey Women podcast, came to fruition in June of 2017. And today, by God's grace, Journey Women is now a not-for-profit ministry with the aim of moving women to know and love God more. Our monthly and one-time givers help make our mission possible. If you'd like to support the work that we do, you can make a tax-deductible donation by visiting journeywomen.org forward slash give. Thank you for investing in the work of Journey Women. Welcome to the Journey Women podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Beadless. Life's a journey we were never meant to walk alone. We all need friends along the way. On the Journey Women podcast, we'll chat with mentors about gracefully navigating the seasons and challenges we'll face on our journeys to glorify God. Today, we're chatting with K.A. Ellis about what it means to put what we've learned in our current series, Journey Women Goes to Seminary, into practice. In this week's episode, Karen reminds us that our ultimate goal is simply to know and love God more. So you'll know her a little bit better. K.A. Ellis is the Canada Fellow for World Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary. She holds a Master of Art in Religion from Westminster Theological Seminary, a Master of Fine Arts from the Yale School of Drama, and she's a PhD candidate in World Christianity and Ethics at the Oxford Center for Mission Studies in England. She speaks and writes on the theology of human rights, African-American culture, understanding Islam, and the persecuted church. As you'll hear, she's also the director of the Edmiston Center for the Study of the Bible and Ethnicity in Atlanta, Georgia. Karen Ellis, welcome to the Journey Women podcast. Welcome back, I should say. <laughs> it's great to be back. Thanks, Hunter. How you been? I think since we last chatted, actually, my house totally flooded and what? I moved out of my house that I just moved into and moved back into my house. So I'm super grateful to be here for this wow. holiday season because we spent the last one in the residence in. <laughs> oh, man. It sounds like you've had a, a year. <laughs> I think we all have. All have. Yeah, yeah. 2020 will definitely go down as a marker. It's like the splitting time. You know, I've heard little kids talk about it as the before time. <laughs> <laughs> well, what have you been up to since we last chatted? I guess it was in the early fall last year. Right, right. Yeah. Well, we've been hunkered down just like everybody else, watching and waiting and praying and uh, learning a lot about uh, what we don't know and learning a lot about what we um, what we do know and should be applying but aren't. My husband and I have been working on getting the Edmiston Center up and running. Uh, we're in our second year. So we're teaching our new courses, which are full, like wow. to capacity with waitlist students or with auditing students, which has been wonderful. So I taught Christian View of Human Rights via Zoom, had a fantastic class of students, everybody from former attorneys to people who work with refugees to people who are, you know, just moving through seminary, people who've been lived in closed country. It was just full of wonderful, wonderful students. My husband taught Christianity as a cultural minority this past summer. And yeah, I mean, I'm also continuing my work alongside International Christian Response and some other organizations that are ministering to marginalized global Christians who COVID has hit 
particularly hard, you know, people in everywhere from refugee camps, which you can imagine it's hard to maintain sanitary conditions, even under the best of circumstances. But they're usually at the bottom of the totem pole on receiving care and aid from their own governments and societies. So we've been raising funds, helping raise funds and awareness for those kinds of things. You've traveled to see people that you're working with overseas in the past. Like, that used to be a bigger part of your work, too. I'm guessing affected by COVID. It has. I miss it, I'll tell you that, because I, I love to go. I've always had itchy feet. My feet are itchy. There's not an, a single area of life that COVID, over which COVID has not said mine. No, I'm joking. Greater than COVID is God. So he's going to have the last say on how all this works out. But COVID has definitely changed a, a lot of how we approach our work. Tell us a little bit more about the Edmiston Center, because we didn't get to talk about that as much in our last conversation. How is the Edmiston Center different than your average kind of seminary experience? Mm -hmm. Well, we're a partner organization, partner institution with RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary, in Atlanta. And Guy Richard, who's the president, uh, the executive director of the Atlanta campus, came to my husband and I and said he had a vision for a, an educational center, and we were already having people come through our house, like stay for long periods of time just to talk about how to take what they were learning in their seminaries and apply these concepts and ways of, you know, approaching scripture to their local context. And so, yeah, we have been having that happen in our house for like five or six years and so Guy and Carl and I, we said, well, there's a way we can do this at RTS Atlanta. So we've developed a specific curriculum that uh, starts with kingdom and missional prayer. And it's a totally practical prayer course. We're not studying about prayer. We actually pray more than we do anything else. That is our foundational course. It's the doorway into the rest of the 10-hour curriculum. And when you come out, you receive a certificate on Bible and ethnicity but all those courses apply to the larger MDiv and the MAR and across the whole Atlanta, the whole RTS uh, system. So having it as the foundational course is really helpful because the you know, first thing you're going to do when you come into the Edmiston Center is God's going to deal with all of us and our idols and mm. kind of reorient our frameworks and reorient. It's just great. I love the way the course is set up. And then we have other courses beyond that that focus on what it's like, what Christian life is like on the margins of society. Yeah. So what does that look like for local Christians? I would include those people working with marginalized populations uh -huh. uh, or places where Christianity is a threat to the drug industry or the trafficking industry because they don't want people to transform because that's loss of income, right? A loss of control. Um, all the way to global Christians who live on the margins of their societies who are oppressed by their governments or their cultures or radical movements that have grown up where they live. So it's all about learning about Christianity on the margins. That is so cool. I just want to go take some courses now. Come on. You're more than welcome. We have, I'm going to save a seat just for you. Oh, it sounds absolutely fabulous. And the thing that you were describing where it's like our theology, what we're learning about God, like in a seminary kind of setting or just on a lay level, like we don't want that to fall flat. We want that to be a part of our worship. So can you tell us what does theology actually have to do with 
everyday life? Like, how is theology actually practical? Because I think a lot of times we think theology happens when we open up our books or when we listen to some kind of educational podcast or take a class through the RTS app. And we don't know how to connect those pieces with kind of when we step into the kitchen and we're doing dishes or when we're going to sit around the table with our children and try and make them eat their vegetables or something. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Where's the verse for that? Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So the question is, what does theology have to do with everyday life? I would say everything. You know, if God has called us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, it's not only how we're thinking about Scripture and taking it into that place where we actually render theology not as a noun, but as a verb. Mm. Theology is something that you do. John Frame and uh, my husband has, he's, both of us borrow from John Frame quite a bit. He says that uh, theology is the application, the wise application of God's Word to every area of life. Wow. And so that's how you move it from being a noun to a verb. It should color how we see everything. And because God has established a people unto himself, how it informs who we are and what we do makes us look different from every other culture and every other group of people, whether you group them by sociological categories or ethnic categories, whatever. It should make us look like a different kind of people on earth. So it's all connected. You can't separate, you know, the old people used to say, your ethics and your epistemology should match, but they didn't say it like that. They said, say ought to match do. Hmm. So what you know You're about my language now? Yeah, come on. Now. <laughs> what you know? That's what the old. Listen, the, more, the older I get, I'm in my mid fifties now. The older I get, the more I'm like, dang, the old people knew a lot. <laughs> I should have listened earlier. But say, ought to match do. So what we know about God, our epistemology, mm-hmm. and how we obey God, our ethics should go together. And we can see lots of times in history where they didn't, where they didn't match. And so that's our challenge as teachers, as educators, as disciple makers, which is really what teaching in seminary to me is. As a disciple maker, my goal is to encourage myself and those around me to make sure that their ethics and their epistemology match or that their say matches their do. I love that. And actually being in New England, like you're saying, we stand out so distinctly in the way in which we live here. And I just had a neighbor who told me she was like, you know, you're and I'm not saying this to toot my own horn because I'm a very simple person just seeking to do exactly what you've said, like for my life to match what I believe. Mm -hmm. And she told me, she said, you have a whole vocabulary and a whole language that I have never experienced before. She said, where somebody else would say, man, you're so lucky. You say, man, look at how blessed and thankful I am. Mm -hmm. She said, instead of saying like, what a bummer, you say, man, I really lament I lament that. Mm. Just how it impacts the theology, our understanding of who God is, is going to trickle down into every aspect, even our vocabulary, the way Mm -hmm. we talk, the way Mm -hmm. we do things. Can you offer us an example in your life of how growing in your understanding of who God is, your theology has practically changed the way that you do something in your life? Mm. (laughs) Goodness gracious. Something. (sighs) I realized who Jesus was (laughs) about maybe 27, 28 years ago. Uh I grew up in church. 
but I did not know who he was. Matter of fact, I was a church organist. That's so impressive. I played piano, but when you've got the feet and the hands going, that's next level. Right. You get that low E flat way down at the bottom. (laughs) I was the church organist. I was a choir director, but I had no idea who I was singing about, who I was, you know, leading others to sing about. Hmm. And, uh, you know, the way I understood who God was, I went from not knowing him and thinking that he was one God of many names just really unraveled the more I started thinking about that. I'm like, well, what if you're like, if you believe this, does he pull out this book and judge you by that? Like, how does how does that even work when you get to, I knew in some way there was going to be some kind of end where he was going to say, you know, okay, you got it or you didn't, you know? Uh-huh. And so I was like, so I started thinking about, you know, what standard were we all going to be judged by? And so, you know, I went from rendering God as one God of many names to understanding that there was a God of the Bible who had revealed himself to people. And that process of unfolding that and understanding how the Bible worked together from Genesis to Revelation. Like, I think I I saw a lot when I was younger of the Bible as isolated incidents and isolated passages, and I didn't understand how it hung together, that one part was, you know, referencing another part, that, you know, that there were themes, uh, hello, Nancy Guthrie, that there were themes that could be tracked through the whole thing, you know? I'm laughing because this is the third time (laughs) she's been mentioned by one of our guests in this series. I love her thematic approach. So, you know, that brings me to today, And just how I've come to understand God and his work in the world, how did that funnel down into everyday life? It makes such a difference to know he actually started not just my life, but this whole process of human history, if I really believe that, and that it's actually going somewhere, it informs what I do and how I do it today and what I prioritize. And what I'm focused on and what I allow to take most of my focus, am I about the mission that he has set his people on, which, if I believe the Bible, is to let others know who he is and what he's doing in the world and that he is um, and help them see what's already been revealed. I really relate to that, Karen, and I think a lot of the listeners will, too. As you've gone about your theological study, what steps have you taken to ensure that what you're learning doesn't just stay in your head, but that it moves from your head to your heart to your hands? And what's the danger if we don't uh, move towards others in that way as we continue in theological study? Yeah, so I think that, uh, and this this will go back to what I was saying earlier about starting with um, an orientation towards prayer and pulling down your own idols. If you look through the New Testament, well, through the through the Old Testament and the New Testament, and into history, every great renewal, personal renewal, or collective renewal, uh, or revival, some people will call it, was preceded by prayer that called for a casting down of idols. And there's something about that process, um, it seems to me, historically, and I've experienced it personally, there's something about that process that takes you into that space. It's like a propellant. It's like, uh, as friends of mine would say, it's like a flywheel that creates energy of, I now have information and renewed information in my mind that I cannot, I can't, it can't stop in my head. I couldn't stop it in my head if I wanted to because of the way that the Holy Spirit works in that creating this this dynamo, this engine of, uh, oh my goodness, 
This has to be shared. This has to be applied. And so taking that into places where it's actually going to, you know, from the he- from the head to the hands where it's going to actually impact someone else's life, I feel like starting with prayer and that reorientation, that taking my mind and my brain back to Genesis 1 and tasting and seeing that the, not only is the Lord good, but that He created us for something else. Then when I look out and I see the distractions and the diversions that people are, that I I used to be under as well, or that I have to fight still to this day, distractions that take me away from that shalom and that peace that I was actually created for, I want to go out and tell somebody else. That's one of the hardest things for me personally about being under the um, the lockdown and the pandemic restrictions is my husband and I went through a, a prayer renewal process while we were on lockdown. And now I'm like, man, I can't wait till this thing is over so I can see more people because I have a renewed sense of sharing and prayer evangelism and, uh-huh. and wanting to be in people's lives and in their faces. And I'll tell you, honestly, here's something about the seminary experience I have to watch out for, or anybody in ministry. Uh-huh. When you handle the things of God every day, and you use the language, you know, the vocabulary of the uh-huh. things of God every day— you forget that it's powerful. You forget that it's precious mm-hmm. because you're touching, you're touching it every day. And you can think that you're doing, that you're actually, you have an outward expression that's got kingdom advance in mind, but you're actually not. You've actually kind of, well, have I really been passionate about sharing this good news with people. So we've actually had kind of a spiritual renewal in the last little while. Um, Mm. I can't wait until lockdown is over. Mm. Not so I can necessarily so I can travel again, not necessarily so life can get back to normal again, not necessarily even so I can have community again. I can't wait to see people who don't know who Jesus is. I can't wait to be sitting next to somebody on a plane not because I'm going somewhere, but because I can pray and ask God. I was like, God, please open a door for me to talk to this person about you. And uh-huh. he's going to do it. I haven't experienced that kind of drive and that kind of passion. It's been a minute, uh-huh. you know, where I was kind of content to sit and, you know, okay, I know I, I've learned some things about God and I teach some things about God, but am I out there sharing the basics, the essentials? For me, that's come through prayer and seeing somebody's life change radically, seeing my own life change radically, seeing my perspective change radically. Man, I've got a hunger for that like I didn't have before the pandemic was on. Mm-hmm. I totally relate to that. We have playgrounds here on uh, campus where I live. And when we were in the military, we had playgrounds and all the neighborhoods would be oriented around the playgrounds and all the playgrounds here are closed. Mm-hmm. And I used to call it my playground ministry because it was mm-hmm. just you out there with your kids and you're standing around. And that's actually how Journey Women was born because I would see women come to Christ from having conversations on the playground. I'd see women become interested in spiritual things. And so it's been interesting to try mm-hmm. and figure out, okay, how can we 
still move toward, even though the playgrounds are closed right now. And I yearn for the day that they're open and I get to have that playground ministry again. You know, when you were talking, I think one of the things that I'm tempted to do is instead of really focusing on who God is, like you said, going back to Genesis 1 and remembering like what he's doing and what he has been doing since the very beginning. Instead of doing that, when I see that I am not acting in line with who I am in him, I will often fixate on what my hands are doing Mm -hmm. versus really trying to tether into the heart of God. How do you protect against that? I think that's a really common thing, just wanting to behaviorally modify instead of really seeking to know God and out of that knowing to see our lives really transformed by the power of his Holy Spirit. Yeah. So one of the reasons that I love thematic study is it gives you a chance to really trace a line of God's thinking and through people's actions. And, you know, there's there's benefit to me to looking at the places where the church got it right uh, and individuals got it right and communities got it right, not just in Bible, but also in, in redemptive history. But there's also value in studying where people got it horribly wrong. Mm. <laughs> you know, yes. and you know, looking at like how did they get off? How did they get so off? There's usually a me uh, meism. <laughs> There's a creaturism involved. That strong tendency we have from Genesis three to focus in on ourselves and have ourselves be the arbiter of right and wrong. Make ourselves be the ones who are just determining what the people of God should look like or what the chosen community should look like. So, I, you know, for me, tracing those kinds of themes through the Bible and through redemptive history has been helpful. And then looking and studying at what those people were doing. What were those people about? Right now, I'm studying um, an 18th century population. And it's it's wild to look at them. They were one of the first African-led congregations in the Americas, which if you know the history of the Americas, they're in Caribbean and they're they're under Danish colonial rule. And they had a significant impact. They broke all the laws. They weren't supposed to be baptizing people of African descent. It was illegal denominationally and legislatively to read and learn and, and read the Bible and actually own Bibles and hold Bibles, but they were becoming literate. Mm. They were establishing church leaders, which was also against the rules. And so they're violating just about every cultural principle in order to do what God asks the people of God to do, which is go and establish a church. As you prepare for the summer, we want to share a unique way to introduce your non-believing friends to a local church, Skylark. If you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, you need to know about Skylark Summer Camp for your kids or as a means to supplement evangelism. Skylark partners with gospel-centric churches to provide summer camps as a means of childcare. By meeting parents' needs for summer childcare for kids having completed kindergarten through fifth grade, Skylark positions the local church to meet the spiritual needs of their community. They offer gospel-rich curriculum that is new each day of their summer camp. Kids can attend for one week, a few weeks, or all 11 weeks. Choose from one of their four locations offering a full summer program in Dallas, Plano, Allen, and Mansfield. The cost is $325 a week, but you can use the code JOURNEYWOMEN for 50% off every single week. What? Head on over to CampSkylark.com to learn more. That's C-A-M-P-S-K-Y-L-A-R-K dot com and use the code JOURNEYWOMEN for 50% off.
So looking at this little place, this this little group of Christians mm-hmm. started as two people, grew to twelve, and by the time they saw they were now these are part slaves, part free free people of color. By the time of the turn of the uh, 19th century, they had grown to 5,000 members. And these were people repenting from the plantocracy. The, I mean, the, you know, pl- plantation owners. I mean, it's, it's wild. It's a wild story. So I'm thinking, what's the benefit of looking at cultures and Christian cultures like those and saying, man, these people were re- much closer to the heart of what God's mission was, and it cost them everything. Uh But they had such an impact on their culture. They changed legislation from the courts just by arguing for the humanity of their biblical marriages. Like, Like, the courts didn't even have them gendered. Wow. Like, they didn't have genders because they were just considered beasts. And so they start going to court. They start saying, I'm a Christian person, and we are married people. And they're like, well, how can you be married? You're, you're not female. You're not male. And they go, yes, we are. So anyways, all that to say, if we think about, of course, the only person to ever perform, as it were, or live the Christian life perfectly was Jesus. Jesus himself, because he is, he is Christianity. He is who he says he is. So if we put him in the center of a bullseye, uh-huh. there are Christian communities throughout history that are closer to that center. Nobody's in the center with him, but they're closer to that center and further away. That's kind of how I look at people, you know, how the closeness of how their ethics and their epistemology matched, what they believed about God, how they obeyed God, how they how they treated the marginalized among them both in their camps and outside, how they treated those who uh, had been oppressing them and then suddenly realized who, what they were doing and came to faith in Christ and changed how, you know, the, for the level of forgiveness in those communities and, you know, just the closeness and the proximity to the life of Jesus. I find those ones fascinating to study. I'm unearthing them all throughout uh, redemptive history. I'm just trying to find them and figure out what they have to teach us about returning to first things, about taking their knowledge of God. The more you walk with him, the more you're going to know, and Lord willing, the wiser you'll be. But it's interesting when you think about like the old saints uh-huh. They get to that point where they get a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of head knowledge. They know a lot about Scripture, and then they kind of fall off this cliff into a second naivete where they realize, man, God, I've been walking with you for a minute, and I feel like I know you really well, but I actually don't know anything. Uh-huh. And you kind of come back to this place when you get that old, wise place <laughs> where you realize the more you've learned, the more you realize you don't know anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a true posture of humility. Oh, it's wonderful. I'm, I'm so praying for that day <laughs> when I could just fall off into that place. In theological camps, like those of us who are inclined to really study kind of the intricacies of the text and who want to be able to defend our faith well, is that sometimes it can have a propensity, maybe not the theological study necessarily, but we can become arrogant or Mm -hmm. eager to pick fights. Like if you do a solid five minutes on Twitter, you're going to see this all over the place. Yeah. how can we be careful that our theology and the study of theology is not making us more 
arrogant and Mm -hmm. eager to pick fights with those who maybe don't know as much. Yeah, I get that. And I actually have been there. You know, when I first went through seminary, you know, you come out with all these, you know, polysyllabic words and you're like, hey, let me lay them on you, you know. <laughs> let me tell you what you don't know. <laughs> Whether you're approaching scripture through seminary or through personal study or through discipleship, the closer I hold the concept of I'm approaching this to be formed spiritually, I'm approaching this to be changed. I think that goes a long way to maintaining a posture of humility. Going to seminary is not the same as going to law school. It's not the same as going to medical school. You're actually going to study and be formed by the king of the universe. You're not going to study with a particular person who is, you know, they're the top in their field, which is a a big thing in academia, right? Oh, I studied with so-and-so. You're going to be formed. People who are approaching seminary as a career, that's like the next thing I need to do in my career, I don't think that's a good headspace to approach seminary with. But if you think about it, like the ideal seminary experience is to come out a different person than you went in as spiritually formed, more humble, knowing the character of God better rather than, you know, necessarily, for me, necessarily, and I love parsing Greek verbs, you know, don't get me wrong. I I loved the languages, but that's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to know God better. And you don't get that with other programs. You don't get that with other advanced academic programs. And then here's where they're the same where seminary experience is similar to med school or law school, is that every advanced program has its own lingo and its own vocabulary. You know, you hang out with a bunch of nuclear physicists, you know, they have their own vocabulary. They're going to talk about bosons and protons, and they're going to have boson and proton jokes, you know, (laughs) just (laughs) that only they understand, right? But when you come to seminary, you're not coming to study a subject. You're coming to know a person. And you're coming to handle and taste and touch and feel the things of God. That's a very different approach to academia. If I can hold on to that for however many years I'm in seminary, I'll come out a spiritually formed person, not a person with an MDiv or a person with an MABS, or a person with an MAR. I want to come out as a person who's been spiritually formed to live the Christian life well. Mm, I've been thinking about that a lot, just even in my own personal Bible study. I used to say, let's be women of the book. And I think there's an element of truth to that. But one of my mentors here, we were talking, it's actually our community group leader. And he said, he's like, you know, a lot of people say be people of the book, but we're people of the person. We're people Mm. of the person of Jesus Christ. And that's really been transforming the way that I approach my own time of personal Bible study. So I think the Mm. truth that you shared about what it's like to be a seminary student just go and and reach even beyond that into just our own personal kind of devotional time. Speaking of, have you ever had a time in which you've had a hard time connecting what you're learning, like in your personal Bible study, in your time with the Lord, with what you're actually living out? And if you have had that time, what helped? What helped you kind of connect those two things? Mm Mm-hmm. It's going to take a couple of different rabbit trails to answer, but 
working with people on the margins is extremely sobering because you see a lot of uh, working with people who practice Christianity on the margins because you see a lot of things that are unjust mm-hmm. and you see a lot of things that are unfair and you really see the depth of man's inhumanity to man. And there are a lot of unanswered questions that God leaves us with. And I really struggle with that. I'm like, God, if you're sovereign and you're out for my good and you, you, want, you want me to do this, you want me to have hope, why can't you explain what's happening? Some of the things that I see happening, for example, and some of the responses that I see other Christians have, I'm not, I haven't been brought to a place where I can have the kind of abandon that I see them have. I struggle with extreme injustice and abuse that I see in the Bible. I have to hold on to the knowledge that God promises that he will one day balance the scales and that everyone will be satisfied with how he does it, how he balances the scales, because only he can execute perfect justice and mercy. But when justice remains elusive in this lifetime, that is one of the biggest challenges of my faith. Why do the wicked prosper? (laughs) You know, it's like the psalmist wrote, why do injustices not just happen, but keep happening? Why doesn't humanity learn its lesson? Why doesn't God stop certain evils? I struggle with those kinds of questions. And I struggle with making the answer of eternity and the answer and the hope of eternity just a pet answer. I don't want it to be just something that I apply where I heal somebody's wounds lightly, Uh but actually take them by the hand and say, you know what? I don't know the answer to this right now, but I will walk with you through it. And I will walk with you all the way through the end as Jesus walks with us all the way through the end because we may not get answers until the end. I think that's one of my biggest struggles. I also think that I struggle with the upside downness (laughs) of the world, that the way down is the way up. (laughs) No death, no resurrection. No resurrection, no Pentecost, no Pentecost, no glory. And how we as the people of God are challenged to live that pattern after our love, after Jesus, we're challenged to live that pattern in everyday life. Every single day, he's saying, die so that you can live. It's completely upside down from everything tangible that I see around me that says, live, 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 so you can die. Live your best life. Yeah, Yeah. your best life now. But I'm dying. I'm actually dying. (laughs) But there's life there. Yes. I have to, like, camp people around me. Everybody needs, like, an army of errands to hold your arms up. And not your arms of battle, but your arms of faith to do battle. So that you can say, when, when one falls, the other one says... There's a reality that God's working with that's completely different from what we're experiencing. Suffering will teach you to hate sin, and it will teach you to, to hate the world and the state it's in, but suffering will also teach you to trust God more. Wanting to have arms that embrace that and say, okay, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
Mm-hmm. That's hard. It's a hard place to live. But I think it's a necessary place to live for us to start to understand as Western Christians because we are so conditioned towards comfort and luxury. It's like the the enemy in some ways has exploited that tendency in us. You know, every every culture has its own weak point, its own hole in the armor. And that's one of ours is our orientation towards comfort. So laying that down, it's it's a conscious decision for us. And other cultures and other other times have had other things that they've had to deal with, but I, I'm persuaded that that's one of ours. Mm-hmm. What are some things that you have actively practiced or maybe that the Lord has done in your life just to kind of open up your hold on some of those creature comforts, maybe that you didn't even realize that you maintain. Obviously, you've spent so much time with people in marginalized places, so I think your eyes are open in a way that maybe some of the listeners and my own eyes aren't. So I'd love to hear from you. Can you kind of speak to that? Like, what are some things that you've done or that the Lord's done in you that have helped open up your hands? Oh, you want me to tell my business now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, you know, I don't mind confessing that I've confessed it publicly everybody's got something that is their weakness and their strength. You know, uh, every strength has like a flip coin, right? It's got a weakness on the other side. And mine as a public person and as a a very social person on the flip side of that for me is extreme social anxiety. Hmm. And so the Lord has really challenged me to lay that down, which, you know, at at the root of that exists fear of man. And the Lord's challenged me to lay that down. And at the same time, the tuition for wisdom is high. When you say you want to get wise about something, God's like, he's like, you know, there's a cost to this. And so severe mercy. Yeah. You know, I'm like, okay, I want to be wise in this area. I want to be wiser in managing my social anxiety. And God says, oh, you do, do you? (laughs) Let me just give you a little platform here on which to practice. See, right. Exactly. And, you know, we all want it to be imparted to us. Like, you know, can't you just give it to me like you gave it to Solomon? You know, like he just woke up and then he was rendering judgments, you know, (laughs) he's like, then the you know, two women come with the baby and totally know, right. And he's like, no, it's like, you're going to have to learn this. Yeah. And so this is one of many areas. I have many areas, but this is one area where God has been prying my fingers off of the idol of making other people bigger than him, making other people's opinions larger than he is, making other people's acceptance larger than he is. Anybody you have listening right now, when I say social anxiety, if they have it, they know what it is. They know how big it is. It can be debilitating. But he's faithful to help us pay our tuition (laughs) as we become wise. He's like, I'm not going to break you. You're a bruised reed. I'm not going to break you as I form you this way. And he's wonderful in that. He doesn't utterly destroy us, but he's like, we got to strengthen this thing in you. He gives you those spiritual uh, crutches or braces or a cast, whatever it is that's on that bruised area so that it doesn't bend so easy in that area. And aren't we blessed, Hunter, in that God never makes us deal with all our stuff all at one time? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Can, you, can you imagine? No. <laughs> if, he's like, we go work on this one. Yeah, I really relate to what you're saying just in relation to journey women. I really appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing that with us. And I think it's a good segue. 
What practical step for the listeners would you encourage them in? Obviously, they can look into pursuing different avenues of theological study like the Edmiston Center or even RTS has its, you know, a lot of its degree program totally for free via their app. But maybe just get a little bit more practical for us. How can we put our theology into practice after we've listened to this episode? The first thing I want you to do is ask God to show you your idols. That's always a hard question. Because mm-hmm. you know he's going to do it. Oh, yeah. And you know you have them. Yeah, everybody got them. And if you're sitting here going, well, I don't have any, you, of all people, are the main person who needs to ask God. But I know you want me to tell you, go out and feed the poor. I know you want me to tell you, go out and start a ministry. I know you want me to tell you, go out and get involved in fighting human trafficking. I know you want me to give you something that you feel like you're doing something. But prayer is action. Prayer is revival. Once you start to ask God, that first step, show me my idols, Yeah, he's going to take you on a journey that's going to take you to the place where you're going to put your hands to something. But you do not want to put your hands to something until you lay your idols down. Mm, that'll preach. I'll have to go do that. I'm a little nervous, but I'm excited at the same time. <laughs> I, I promise you, I'll do it with you. I have to ask daily. I really do. Because at this point in life, girl, I'm at that Rocky one last punch, you know, you know, old Rocky. Young Rocky used to dance all over the mat and, you know, he'd punch, 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 punch. You get to old Rocky, like Rocky 10. I don't know how many Rockies there were. But you get to Rocky, the last Rocky movie, you know, or, you know, when he's up in Apollo and he's got one good punch left. Yeah. I feel like culturally we're just at a point where we don't have time for rabbit trails. I want to land my punch well. And so I do. I ask God. I'm like, God, I know it's scary. I know that you're going to challenge me and are you going to challenge my family? Because, you know, he doesn't change one piece of the puzzle without changing the rest of the puzzle. So if he starts changing you, the people around you are going to start changing. But when we ask God to show us our idols, it's the bravest and best prayer we can ask. And then watch what happens. Watch what God does. Well, that's definitely one of my simple joys, being freed up of idols and walking in the freedom that I have in Christ, which Mm -hmm. is what we talked about in our last conversation. Last time I also asked you what your three simple joys are, and I was going to ask you the same thing today, but I'm, I'm, are you willing for me to kind of shake things up a little bit? Sure. (laughs) So as you're talking, I'm like, man, this is just a woman who has had years of walking with the Lord and years of really pursuing him through both her mind and her heart, desiring to know God more. So what are three of your simple joys as you have gone about your own theological study? Oh, boy. Well, we talked about traveling, first off. I love that the work that God has given me takes me around the world. It's not so much that I get to apply my hands to things, but I get to see how others are doing it. Yeah. And I get to see their headspace that really challenges my own limited. My thinking can grow very limited and very ingrown. So I miss traveling, but I love it. I love teaching. And I love teaching because I love learning. Yeah. My approach to teaching is basically crowdsourcing education because my students are adults. You know, they can be a stay at home mom who has, you know, she's taken her kids through all sorts of different curriculums or, you know, attorneys who've, you know, practiced, you know, in a particular area. I'm like, teach me what you know about the subject 
Hmm. Because there's so many, the subject we're studying, because there's so many more, they, they challenge my thinking, they yeah. expose me to new writers, so I, I love teaching. And I'd say my third simple joy, theologically speaking, and personally speaking, this is going to sound crazy, but I love being an Ellis. I love my family. I was out making a fire, you know, for us to sit around the fire pit yesterday. And I could hear my son and my husband, you know, hammering out a theological concept. I could hear them. They're talking to each other. and They're actually yelling. And they're, they're, <laughs> I can hear them through the window. And I'm, you know, I'm starting this fire outside. And I'm like, man, this is such a neat place to be. They're, they're just working stuff out. They're thinking through life and what God wants from them. I married my family. I was a later married. I didn't get married until I was in my mid-40s. And so I married all of them. And, I, you know, it's a place where I'm loved and accepted. And, you know, we can geek out on nerd stuff and theological stuff and yet, you know, get really super practical about life and what it looks like down on the ground. They care for me so well in that space. So, uh, yeah, it's just neat to be, that's one of my great joys is being able to talk with them in that space and, you know, make sure our say is matching our do. For sure. Yeah. Nobody like family will challenge you to do that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I love them so much. And they just welcomed me with open arms. They took me in. Open arms, open hearts, open minds. Those are my three joys, teaching, traveling, and being with my family. Well, you've done such a beautiful job helping us kind of bring what we've been learning that feels sometimes a little bit up in the clouds down to reality. I would love to hear from you. We've heard from you on your past episode who it is that's had the greatest impact on your journey with Jesus. But who is it that's had the greatest impact on you bringing things down out of the clouds and really applying your theology to everyday life? I'd have to tip my hat to the people at Prayer Current. And if you look them up, we use a significant portion of their curriculum in our Kingdom of Missional Prayer. That's the name of the mm. course. We use their curriculum. They're in Canada, and they've done a lot of thinking about the connection between prayer, renewal, revival, kingdom advance, and practical life on the ground. So look them up. I think it's prayercurrent.com or prayercurrent.org. He was uh, the fellow who's written most about uh, the curriculum. Most of the curriculum is a fellow named um, Pastor John Smith, and he was my pastor. I've had some great pastors in my life. Kevin Smith at New City Fellowship and his wife, Sandra. John Smith and his wife, Karen. I've just been blessed to have great, great pastoral leaders who they're very much about your say matching your do you know, your ethics and your epistemology matching. They're well-trained theological thinkers, their husbands and their wives. They're really well-trained biblically, but they also, they've uh -huh. got that connection between the practical and the theoretical. And that's been uh -huh. essential for me. I'll leave you with one last thought. Back in the, in the times when people, you know, Italian operas were, you know, they were the pop music of the day. You know, so you think back to um, the days of the, let's say the 17th, 18th century. And uh, they would ask you, does the song, like, you know, like you think about a classical, what we would call classical music today, but Oh Mio Babino Caro or, um, you, know, um, you know, Puccini's arias, you know, that they would ask, does it grind? And by asking, does it grind, what they meant was, can the man stand on the street corner and play it out of the organ grinder? Do, 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 you know, and, and will the, the, the common man on the street 
walk away humming the aria. And can, mm. can the little monkey jump off the guy's shoulder and go around with the tin cup to the common man and the mm-hmm. common woman and collect some money and come back? Mm. Does it grind? And I often apply that to theology. Mm-hmm. Does it grind on the ground? If a theory or, you know, a th- way of thinking that you've developed from Scripture, if it doesn't apply, if it doesn't mean anything to our practical everyday life on the ground, it doesn't grind. Mm-hmm. It's got to grind. Yeah, that's one of my favorite analogies. Can the organ grinder take it to the regular people and the common man? And if the answer is no, then you really need to go back and rethink your theology, because theology, God's Word is meant to be lived, not to be read. Mm, That is so wonderful. I am so thankful for your help in just kind of evaluating where we're at, whether or not we're able to grind (laughs) on the street (laughs) corner, and just the admonition to really continually go back to His Word. So thank you so much for joining us and encouraging us to that end, Karen. It's been such a joy to get to hear from you again. We pray this episode with Karen is a resource that you can come back to again and again as you continue to seek to live out your theology. If you want to check out the resources that she mentioned, you can find all the details on our website at journeywomenpodcast.com in the episode show notes. This is the very last episode of 2020. We'll be back with you guys in February of 2021, the Lord willing. Do make sure that you're subscribed so you don't miss new episodes of the podcast when they air. If you want to give us a Christmas gift, please do leave us a rating and review on iTunes. We read every one of them and we are so grateful. I especially love this one from Becca G who said, Hunter and her guests help you examine the heart and the root of your desires, not to just look at the symptoms, but at the sickness itself. Her guests are incredible. Her podcasts are refining and it makes you want to believe more and walk with God more wholeheartedly. Thank you so much, Becca, and all of you who have taken time to leave a rating and review. It really does help get the podcast into the hands of other women who might find it helpful as they continue on their journeys to glorify God. Today's episode was edited by Chad Michael Snavely and the team at Sound On, Sound Off. We are so grateful for them and for you. It's a joy to get to journey alongside you guys. Can't wait to see you here next year. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.